0: Well, good morning everybody. Alright, our uh, text this morning is from the book of Ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 and 4. If you could please turn there now. Now for some time we've been advancing quite slowly, just one verse at a time, but today we are going to make a giant leap forward and we're going to do a whole two verses. Unfortunately, this will keep us here a bit longer, but they are connected, and so we must read them together. Now, previously we've been encouraged by a great vision of goodness, God himself, who is our standard to imitate. However, Paul knows from his own experience and from observing life around him, and not least of all by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that humans are always pulled back by sin. He knows that he has to address the whole character of man. And so, in this next section, he moves from a theme of self-sacrificial love to talk about the problems and dangers of self-indulgence in the Christian life. So, let's read then Ephesians 5, 3, and 4, and I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanliness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now this might be a peculiar question to ask from a pulpit, but just for a moment, cast around in your mind to think about where the most notorious red-light districts are in the world. Perhaps King's Cross in Sydney, or Patpong Pong in Thailand, or perhaps De in Amsterdam. And I'm sure that these are difficult, if not repulsive, places for Christians to think about. And the people who live and visit there are probably not the sort of people that we feel we'd like to associate with. But what we need to grasp, though, is that if I ask the same question of people living at the time that Paul wrote this, well, the name Ephesus will probably spring to mind. Imagine that the people Paul is writing to in this letter, well, they don't live in Eketahuna, but they live in Auckland. Ephesus is a a thriving port city, and as well as that commercial bustle, it has important temples dedicated to worship of both the Roman Emperor and the goddess Artemis. And these are big temples. The Temple of Artemis has been described as the largest building in the Greek world, and it was named as one of the seven wonders of the world in its time. And Artemis had many faces and styles of worship, but in Ephesus, it's generally agreed that she was worshipped as a fertility goddess. And that means that there was almost invariably some kind of sexual immorality practiced as part of normal worship. And the other thing is, as I've said, this was a port. And ports have sailors, and sailors, as it's politely said, have a girl in every port. In fact, the problem wasn't just confined to the working classes, it was a social epidemic. The moral life of the Greco-Roman world had sunk so low that fornication had long come to be regarded as a matter of moral indifference. It wasn't worth comment and was indulged in without shame or scruple, not only by the masses but by philosophers and men of distinction who in other respects led very exemplary lives. Thus, many of the people who are reading this letter would have been brought to faith out of a background where sexual immorality, drinking, and swearing and spitting would all have been seen as normal, if not encouraged and glorified as part of normal everyday life. So it's no wonder then that Paul has to write what he has written here. Sitting in the pew then, listening, we might wonder, well, what is the relevance of this message to us today? We don't have any temples here in Wanganui, and our once busy port is now a giant mud hole. We are good Hueys. We are conservative. In fact, we are saved. But here's the thing. We are all still human. Just like those Ephesians. We have the same urges, and the same desires, and the same temptations, and we do live in a world that really isn't so different. The world we live in is extraordinarily permissive. In Ephesus, they had the Emperor and Artemis as gods. Our world says, there is no God. There are no consequences for the way you live. We all have rights. Do what you like, and I mean, do what gives you pleasure. Prostitution is legal right here in our town. In fact, you pick up the Chronicle every day and there's a small column dedicated to it. Our television and cinemas and press are full of seductive and permissive themes. There are bars everywhere. There are liquor outlets everywhere. Less than half a K from this church, there is one and it's open right now in case somebody feels they need a nip for the end of the sermon. And we might have seen the end of legal highs. But the drug thing isn't finished. We all hear pressure about how we must now legalize marijuana. And I could go on and on, couldn't I? So, we need this message. The world needs our message. But not a story that has been broken by our personal compromises in these matters. For the gospel to be real and honest... The people who preach it, and remember I'm not talking just about what comes from pulpits, but the proclaiming of the gospel that is a responsibility of every believer, every day, for the gospel to be real and honest, its people have to be real and honest. So with these needs in mind, let's go on to see specifically what the text has to say. Verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or uncovetousness, let it not even be named among you. So Paul begins here by attacking physical conduct before he goes on to sins of speech. Why? Well, to drag out some old cliches, I believe it's because he knows that talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. I realise that this will be shocking news to you, so it's just as well that you're all sitting down. But our generation didn't actually invent lies and embellishments. The people in Paul's time, so, were just as cynical as we are about the truth of what people say. How can we know that? Well, do you think that our need to look better than we are, to gain some kind of advantage over others or stay out of trouble has changed over the last 2,000 years? Do you think so? No, of course not. The flesh has always been the same. So we always want to see how people act before we can start to trust them and their message. And as Christians, we must have a message. It's not an optional extra. Jesus directly commissioned every Christian to go and make disciples of the whole world, not just next door, not some of it or some of us, So, to do this work effectively, we must be careful about what we do and what we say. The world is watching to see if we are serious. We are judged by the truth of our actions. And thus, people will know whether it is worth listening to what we have to say. Now, we will probably understand fornication today as meaning sexual union outside the bond of marriage. Well, actually, Paul is talking about a bit more than that. And although the original Greek word was originally descriptive of exactly that, extramarital sex, it did come to be used in a much wider sense to describe a whole bunch of things. Uh, Habitual immorality of a sexual nature, homosexuality, incest, pornography, and prostitution. So when we read this word fornication, we've got to think about all those things. It definitely wasn't a nice word to be used at the dinner table. And despite the passage of the years, it retains its vile taste today amongst many people, both Christians and non-Christians. So there's a question hanging in the air here. If this is an ugly word, and we have been saved by and therefore represent God, who is perfectly holy and beautiful, why, oh why, would we ever be persuaded to allow this word to be used of ourselves. It's significant that one commentary points out that like black and white are complete opposites, this word is the absolute opposite of the one used in Galatians 5, and I know it's best favourite verse as well, of the fruits of the Spirit for the trait of self-control. Fornication is completely opposite to self-control. It follows then that if self-control is the fruit of the spirit, then fornication or immorality must be the slime of the devil. Why would we want that muck on us? And let's not pretend that these are the problems of someone else, somewhere else, a kind of low life that we would never associate because we are good people, good Christians, and it's important for us to look like that all the time. The problem of immorality is real and alive right here in this church. In in this church today in us. And I know it's true because I know my own struggles for purity. Let's be honest about the danger that is around us every day. See it? Yes. We can't avoid that. But don't linger on it or love it. Don't fall into it. And if you do... Or if you are afraid that you will, then act immediately to bring it into the light with a fellow believer. And then with the help of the Spirit, you can overcome it. And we need so badly to overcome it because immorality can make us do more than just stumble. It can break our bones. I found this great illustration about the danger of immorality. Sex is like a river. Sex is a gift of God which is like a great river flowing through life, which, kept within its banks, is a source of pleasure and power. However, when a river overflows its banks, it becomes destructive and disaster ensues. In the same way, the water contained within bounds and channeled through the great dams of the Mackenzie Basin hydroelectric system is a source of tremendous electrical power. And that's good. We enjoy that every day. However, if cracks were allowed to develop in any of the dams and allowed to grow, eventually they would burst through and we would have a terrible catastrophe. Sexual impurity is similar to a river overflowing its banks or the cracks in a dam. It begins with just a few thoughts, prompted perhaps by just one or two innocent images, and then it grows and festers and is fed by more thoughts until one day, breaks out. No believer becomes immoral in a moment. It is a gradual erosion of core values, a continual ignoring of one's conscience, and a repeated repression of the indwelling spirit's urgings to refrain and flee. As godly men and women, we must recognize the deceitfulness of any sin, but especially the particularly pleasurable sin of illicit sexual activity. When the tempting thoughts come, we must take them captive by the grace and power of the indwelling spirit and hand them over then to our Lord Jesus. So we must flee from anything, anyone or anywhere that improper sensual and seductive images are portrayed in case we are overwhelmed by rushing waters. Paul's next attack is on the sin of doing uncleanness. Now, I use the New King James Version here, and it might possibly have a different word to the one in your Bible. Yours may say something like impurity, for example. And once again, it's because the original Greek word has a broad meaning. Impurity, or uncleanness, is a compound word. It's made up of two words, for, without, and cleans. Without cleanse. It literally describes any substance that is filthy or dirty or cold, and we aren't talking merely about grubbiness here, a spot on the kitchen counter. It's a very strong word. For example, it was used to talk about pus in an open and infected wound, or the contents of graves. When Jesus attacks the Pharisees' hypocrisy and he likens them to whitewashed tombs in Matthew, this is the word that he uses for the tombs' contents. Now, I'd like to believe that these unpleasant images give us some idea of the way that God views our sin. And because it's his view, it shouldn't just be his perspective alone. If you'll excuse me for being very direct for the sake of making a point, I must say that none of us will gaze lovingly at an infected wound for the joy of it. And nobody will be found having a play around inside a coffin. Why? Because these are repulsive things. Which is exactly what we are expected to understand. God hates them and so should we. They are so horrible in fact that they should not even be named amongst us. We should not be speaking about them at all. All fornication, all uncleanness, all covetousness, all of them, none should be seen or heard of in our lives. I've actually got a bit ahead of myself here because I haven't spoken about covetousness yet. What's that? Covetousness is just plain greediness. A selfish desire to always have more. And that isn't so hard to understand. It doesn't need any deep meaning from the Greek because we all know about it. But that familiarity should never be the cause for contempt because greed is extraordinarily dangerous. We become caught up in this cycle where our personal satisfaction becomes dependent on the next fix of getting a new thing. If I just buy this or, or I just attain this, then I will be happy and satisfied, is what we say to ourselves. But the truth is that we are never satisfied. We are never sated. And so we go on and on and on, reaching out to that very next seductive fruit. And in doing so, we replace the great God who satisfies our every need with that small God whose name is greed. And as I've already said, we live in a highly permissive society that emphasizes personal freedom. Deviance is dismissed with a wink and a nod. After all, a little of what you like won't do you any harm. Go on, enjoy it. No one will know or care. Rubbish! We do not live in a world where other humans are the only ones who measure our actions, and where consequence seems to be just suspended and hanging up there in some mysterious way. No. We live in a world created by an eternal sovereign God, and we too were created by Him. He made us. He decided that we stand for our behavior. And he decides the consequences, be they good or bad, and he definitely will apply them without fail. When Paul writes here that these sins should not even be named, what he's doing is he's establishing a standard for us to aspire to. And it isn't some wishy-washy, movable and worldly standard, but it's God's perfect standard. Let's recognise, yes, It is high, but it is there for a good reason. We may strain against it, but no one knows us like our Creator. He gave us His commands for our own good. And when we break them, it's true, we might enjoy some short-term pleasure, but that will always be at the cost of long-term pain and problems. When When you think about it, In fact, it's it's this defining line that gives us real freedom. Freedom isn't, as we so often hear, the ability to just do whatever we like, whenever we like. Because the only consequence of that will be chaos. No. True freedom is knowing what and when is right and wrong. And what that needs is a fixed standard that everyone understands. Those standards bring peace and harmony. And here, we have the standard for believers' behavior. So what should we aim for then? A minute of bliss now? Or millennia of rapture in the Lord's hands? Chaos or order? I think the answers to those questions are no-brainers. The standard is very clear. Our aim must Be to not allow the very smallest trace of these sins to enter our lives. Paul has painted this picture here in verse 3 of the people of God, the saints. And that's us, we're all saints. Being distinguished from those around them, from what we call normality, but is in fact chaos and sin by a very high standard of self-control. They walk the walk. Their actions with regard to the most obvious problems of society which are around sex and the drive for material things is a light and a revelation to those around them. There is no bushel here. Without even speaking, they say, this is what God looks like and this is why you need Him. But, Do they talk the talk? Earlier we spoke about how this text distinguishes actions from words. Read in verse 3, Fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Well, That was the action part. And here's the talking part. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You know, this thing here is trouble. It's true that it's small compared to the rest of us, but when it's not connected to this thing here, it can be a gigantic problem. I cannot tell you how many times my own silly statements have caused me deep grief and embarrassment. And whenever I think about the tongue I'm reminded of this passage in James three. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Our tongues are like rudders, aren't they? They have a completely disproportionate effect to their size. Where would a preacher be without their tongue? How would politicians lie and cheat? Sorry. I mean consider matters of great national importance without debate in Parliament. One tongue, one tongue can literally affect millions of lives. So what effect does your tongue have? I've already said how important our actions are, but they aren't enough on their own to tell the whole story. For me to really know who you are and what you stand for, I have to speak to you. You know, I could stand and watch what you did for days and days, and certainly I would learn a lot about you, but for that whole picture, the complete thing, I have to be able to hear you, And I need to make an exchange with you and draw you out. So what will I learn from the words that come from your mouth? Now, I'm not sure of the source, and I couldn't find it online, but I heard a couple of years back that in the whole world, Kiwis have the dubious honour of being second only to Aussies in the use of bad language. It's quite an achievement. Now, I don't know if that's really true, or how you might measure that, but one thing is for sure, like advertising, bad language is too easily encountered. You hear it walking on the avenue, in shops, at the table next to you in restaurants. Now, you might have heard the saying, "Cussing like a trooper. Not to excuse it, but we sort of expect soldiers to curse. But, not small children... And well-dressed ladies. And that's what we hear all around us every day, and they're not just saying bother and damn either. It's the very worst words. Used so liberally to the extent that I honestly believe that some people could say twice as much as they do if they just left out the curse words. We might think, so what? Everybody does it. They're just words. Eventually they'll, you know, they'll lose their sting, we'll get used to having them around us. And my objection to this line of reasoning is twofold. First of all, it's not that. It's not reasoning at all. If we don't engage our heads and think about what we do and what we say, well then what are we? We're just a second rate follower of others. Who also don't think. It's just dumb imitation. It's one fish following the others. Just keep swimming, 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 swimming. We swim up, we swim down, we swim left, we swim right. It doesn't matter that there's a net in the way. Is that the picture of someone who is in control of their own lives? Is it really the personal freedom that's being spoken about so much today to just trail about wobbling in other people's wakes? The truth is that being real and authentic is a much bigger thing than wearing designer jeans, having the right phone and using the in-language. Being real and authentic authentic means taking the time to think. Think to reason about who you are and who you ought to be, and to stick to that despite what others around you might say. It's hard, but it's worth it. So I say that cussing, just because everybody else does it, is frankly a pathetic excuse. Young people. Young people, are you listening to me? I want to say something very direct to you this morning. Yes, I'm coming down here to talk to you because I want this to be a memorable moment. You are at a time in your life when you are building foundations. And those foundations are going to give you a house that you are going to live in for the rest of your lives. If you make cursing one of the stones in your foundation. If you make it a habit, I can promise you, you will regret that for the rest of your life. It is the very hardest thing to get rid of. And I can tell you that from my own experience. And I guarantee you that there are people around us here in this congregation who will say the same. Yes. Yes. Don't do it. Don't start it. Because It will embarrass you. It will come out at the worst time. You will hear your children using it. And you will hate them. Hate seeing that in them. that, That this failure of yours has become theirs. And I'll tell you something very practical as well. Guys, at some point, you're going to want to get married. And you're going to want a good wife. And I promise you, those really good ladies, the ones that are worth having, they don't like hearing those words. They don't. And ladies, you want a good man? Do you? Well, I guarantee you that those good men are the same. There's something deeply unattractive about a woman who uses bad language. So please, remember what I've said to you today. Hold on to the purity of your mouths. Now, I said that my objection was twofold. And the second part is this. I don't care how often curse words are used or what justification is made, but they are not ever words of thanks and glorification. And they are factually useless. They never add anything to a conversation. And they are always ugly words. They look ugly when we see them on a page. They sound ugly. They don't flow off the tongue. They are full of harsh and sharp sounds. And worst, worst of all, they deliberately describe the beautiful things that God has made in very ugly ways. Have you ever thought about swearing like that? That it's a direct attack on the worth of God's creation? That it's saying that what he has made isn't good? And although I've been very specifically talking about language for some time now, what I've said is true about all of the things that Paul has mentioned here, isn't it? He talks about filthiness. Well, that's indecent or inappropriate behaviour and speech. Things like obscene gestures or just making those little public comments about passing girls, for example. Foolish talking means taking something that is shameful and then making it appear acceptable by the humour that you put into it. The Greek word that's used here is morologia. Does anyone have any guesses about what modern word is related to that? Morologia? Moron. Yes, moron. Do you want to be called a moron? Well, think about that the next time you make a foolish comment. The coarse jesting that we read here, it seems straightforward enough. Oh, It's just no dirty jokes, right? We all know what they are. In fact, it's not that obvious. Have you ever seen those people at parties who are the center of attention, the life and soul of the party, the clever fellow with the quick wit well, let's see if that's a good idea because that's exactly the person that Paul is describing the idea that such a person uh, is that he, they turn easily that's the meaning of the word they make these quick comebacks with clever words and often they have uh, double meanings with a sexual innuendo. And the term includes the use of things like facetiousness, coarse wittiness and ribaldry. Someone like this wriggles around words normal meaning to add color, but unfortunately that color is the color of stinking mud. So are you still interested in that center stage position? I really hope not. I'd never thought about these things as being demeaning of God's good work in creation until I was preparing this sermon. And so the idea really grabbed me. It's not quite in the same league as using the Lord's name as a curse word, but I'd say it's close, it's getting there. And that ought to be an excellent reason to avoid these sins, because they are critical of the wonderful things that the Lord has given us to enjoy. And if he has given them to us, then how could we ever understand them to be flawed? He would never do that. So, that's all good then. Since I have all these observations and condemnations and challenges, then I must have got all these things sorted out in my own life. Yes? No. No. I confess I haven't. I might be standing here preaching. But that's just a type of work that God has given me to do at this time. And it never comes with any special get-out-of-jail-free card or an automatically perfect character. I have the same struggles as every human, every person who is here. And so does every person who stands up to preach. But I will not give up trying. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, I will become better and better and I will glorify God. This I am determined to do. But this is much bigger than me. We all have work to do for the Lord. And we all have struggles. We must all keep trying. And we will get better. And we will then glorify God. Now, that maybe sounds like a sermon end, but I'm sorry to say we have one more short circuit around the airfield to check out the landing. Because there is an important part of our text remaining. If we aren't to be doing these things, staying away from our, for uncleanness, not always wanting more, guarding our mouths, and discipling our actions, well, what's there to fill the vacuum? What should we do, be doing instead? And of course, the answer is right here in front of us. We should instead be giving thanks. We should be pouring gratitude into a world that has become overwhelmed and driven by the need and more, and often where there's no time or inclination even to be grateful for what you have. Because unless you're mega wealthy like Bill Gates, there's always going to be something more shiny to be had. There's always the pressure for more and more. So Christians should be known for being grateful. Grateful for our many daily blessings in the physical sense, yes. Food, shelter, hot showers, arms and legs that work, well, most of the time. But above all, we should be known for being grateful for the very largest gift of all, the gift of salvation bringing with it the promise of a life where these pressures are over for good. Why do I believe that gratitude would be so important? Well, apart from the most obvious answer that we have this instruction here in our scripture today, I have another thought. Let me explain it to you like this. Well, I think that pretty much everyone here knows that I love fishing. I love doing it but I also really enjoy watching TV shows about fishing to see if there's something new that I can learn. And there's lots of them on at the moment, but my most favourite one is one called Big Angry Fish. And it's on this afternoon. Now if you watch this, I can guarantee you, I can absolutely guarantee you that at least once, if not 11 times, the host of the show is going to talk about Pumping a big burly trail. It's his choice phrase. And why not? Because it's a significant part of his fishing success. Now, in case you're wondering, burley is just it's minced up fish with a bit of oil and it's frozen into a big sausage about this long. And you stick it inside a net and then you chuck it over the side of the boat. And as it melts, well, there's a very nice enticing trail of treats that will drift off in the current and encourage fish far and wide to visit your boat, and hopefully encounter your hook. You know, we leave a trail too. As we go through life, the bits of ourselves we leave behind, through our daily encounters with others, can be one of three things. Well, that can be foul, a bad taste that makes you want to spit it out and never meet it again. We've spoken... A lot about that today. The next possibility is that the bits can be bland, just the same as the rest with no interest or appeal to them. And we've also spoken a bit about that. And then lastly, those bits have the possibility of being tasty and appealing so that those who find them will want more of the same. In fact, they'll go to some trouble to find out the source. So I want to suggest that giving thanks is a bit like that burly. It creates a a trail of tasty morsels for people to savour and think about. And it also gives substance to our faith, because only a lunatic would go around thanking someone that doesn't exist. Isn't that a better way to do evangelism? To show the truth is good by what we do and say. Drawing people in rather than trying to shove them into a space that they don't really know much about. And it isn't so hard. We can do this. Paul has shown us how today. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be at work inside us, shining His light on the thousand blessings that You give us every day, so that we would cultivate an attitude of thanks. And Lord, as we see these things, we would see the goodness in them. We would see the goodness in You. And we would realize that these other things, this covetousness and coarseness and all those other things, they are small and insignificant. And we would set them aside. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a people of thanks. And not just happy-go-lucky people, but people who thank God, that God is real and God is good. Help us to do this every day, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.